Thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Your decision in pharmacy has a lasting impact. The daily decisions of people in our industry influence patients, affect families, and change our environment. That's why I want to tell you about AltiGuard Safe Pack, a product from Altimed that makes choosing which pen needle to dispense an easy decision. AltiGuard Safe Pack pen needles are an FDA cleared product that provides 100 premium pen needles in a sharps container, all in one convenient package system. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you protect families and your community from sharps injuries and you remove medical waste from the environment. To learn more, visit altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. That's altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you choose positive change. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. We believe pharmacists are the best positioned providers to lead in PGX. Pharmacogenomics is the study of how genes affect a person's response to drugs. This relatively new field combines pharmacology and genomics to develop effective, safe medications and doses that will be tailored to a person's genetic makeup. This podcast is dedicated to pharmacists with an interest in learning more about the data analytics, industry trends, and evidence-based usage of pharmacogenomics. Welcome to PGX for Pharmacists, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hi, everybody. I have um, Dr. Jay Patel on the call with us as our special guest speaker. I appreciate you being here, Dr. Patel. He's the chair of the Department of Cancer Pharmacology and Pharmacogenetics at Atrium Health's uh, Cancer Institute. And he's also associate professor in the Division of Hematology and Oncology. He, got, he received his doctorate in pharmacy from University of North Carolina, UNC, and also did his oncology pharmacogenomics postdoctoral fellowship at UNC. He's actually leading the clinical pharmacogenomic research and implementation piece of it at Atrium Health Cancer Center. So welcome, Dr. Patel. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And uh as you know, I think one of the big challenges with pharmacogenomics implementation is kind of the lack of awareness and education surrounding it. So I appreciate the work that you all are doing to help uh, kind of bring that awareness out. Yeah, so our podcast, PGX for Pharmacists, really is to educate more pharmacists out there about the clinical um, value and utility and how they can kind of incorporate it into where they're at in their clinical practice. Uh, so that's what we try to educate the pharmacists on here. So can you kind of tell us about um, how you got to where you're at with the pharmacogenomics piece and where you're working right now? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So again, I work at Levine Cancer Institute, which is part of Atrium Health uh, located here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Although we have several sites that are spread uh, across the Carolinas, we also recently um, uh, brought in another health system in Georgia called Navicent Health. And so they're now part of Atrium Health as well. And we also have a strategic partnership now with Wake Forest. So a very large um, nonprofit health system. I particularly work again at the Cancer Institute. Prior to coming here in 2013, I had completed my postdoc fellowship at UNC, uh, which was specifically in pharmacogenomics research and implementation. 
Um, so I had trained with um, Dr. Howard McLeod, who's very well known in the field of pharmacogenomics. And, uh, you know, at that time, it was really in a phase where folks were really just learning about pharmacogenomics, you know, all the data coming out of the Human Genome Project and how we could really utilize genomic information to better manage patients' medications was really coming to fruition for specific drug gene pairs um, that had higher levels of evidence. And so I was involved with some of the research back at UNC and really figuring out how we could implement this into practice. Um, and then came on board here to Levine Cancer Institute in 2013 at a time when this cancer institute was brand new. The building had gone up in 2012, brand new cancer center. And so I had really come in in the initial phase to really help build a clinical pharmacology research program with a focus in pharmacogenomics. And in my leadership, my bosses were very interested in figuring out how we could integrate pharmacogenomics to become part of routine practice here at this brand new cancer center. They really saw the value in it um, and they wanted to make sure that they had someone who had specifically been trained in this area. And so since I've been here in the last, you know, almost eight years now coming in August, we've had a focus in many different areas of pharmacogenomics that spans across cancer therapies, as well as supportive oncology. So looking at pain management, um, depression management, nausea, et cetera, a lot of the cancer related symptoms that unfortunately our patients experience. And so mm -hmm. we've basically set up our program to be able to have the research component as well as clinical component. And the research component really spans across early phase kind of um, genome wide association studies, candidate gene studies, really trying to identify um, certain genes that may be associated with a particular clinical outcome, toxicity or, or drug response. And so we build a number of different biobanks. That's what I had to do very early on because again, with this being a brand new program, we need the samples, we need the specimens to be able to do translational research with. And so we developed some biobanks early on. One is with our bone marrow transplant group where um, all the patients that are admitting for a transplant are offered a consent for additional specimen collection so we can get cheek swabs on them, bank that DNA for future research. Um, we developed a biobank in supportive oncology as well. So patients being referred to palliative medicine, um, given the number of supportive care drugs that those patients are receiving. Um, so we've got you know, several hundreds of samples from those patients, um, as well as more globally, we have um, tissue collection banks as well. And so that again, after several years, we've now been able to accumulate um, several hundreds, if not thousands of samples now to be able to go back and do some um, more translational pharmacogenomic research studies with trying to identify certain genes, again, related to particular drug outcomes. And then from there, we have our kind of prospective interventional trials. And so we've been focused on primarily, again, supportive care, supportive oncology. We've run a couple pilot pharmacogenomic trials looking at pain management. Um, one, again, was run through our Department of Palliative Medicine. Um, so again, this was more of a single arm pragmatic kind of trial, figuring out can we integrate this information into practice and how often is it really being used? And again, this is really in a setting with a lot of clinicians who had never been exposed to pharmacogenomics before. So it involved a lot of upfront education, uh, identifying the best mechanism to integrate results into the workflow and really making sure that it wasn't too disruptive. And so we had completed that trial 
and then we used some preliminary data to apply for a larger grant. And now we're running a study that's funded by the American Cancer Society, um, which is a larger trial focusing on both pain management as well as depression management, and actually doing some early screening to identify patients who are at risk for these symptoms, and then offering them consent to undergo pharmacogenetic testing and following them for about a three-month period to identify how often are we using the results. And if we do use those results, what sorts of improvement do we see in cancer-related symptoms? And, and in a similar trial, we're also running it in our bone marrow transplant patients as well. Um, again, we've developed now our first kind of multi-gene in-house pharmacogenomic panel. And these patients are now consenting to, um, to both of those trials uh, and will undergo testing. And then we'll integrate that information back into our EMR system and monitor how often the results are being used and what sorts of improvements do we see in, in cancer-related symptoms and overall quality of life. And then the, the last piece of that that I'll mention is, um, so we've got our translational research, our clinical, um, clinical trials or prospective interventional trials, and then also purely just clinical implementation. And so far, the cl pure clinical implementation piece has been um, a bit slower to follow. We have implemented a couple single gene tests um, that we develop in our own lab here. It's a CLIA certified lab. And so we've been able to develop these internally to offer to our patients one of which is CYP2C19, which we actually test all of our transplant patients for. And the reason being is that their primary antifungal prophylaxis they receive post-transplant is voriconazole. And so we published on this data, I think it was last year, in clinical pharmacology and therapeutics to basically show that if we can identify uh, rapid metabolizers or ultra-rapid metabolizers up front, and just start them off at a higher dose, we're much more likely to get them within a therapeutic concentration range um, or a trough concentration. And this has resulted in fewer breakthrough fungal infections. Um, and we expect, based off of some modeling we did, to actually reduce overall healthcare costs in those patients too. And so that's one that, based off of that data, we now continue to test every transplant patient. And then more recently, we had um, implemented DPYD testing for patients who are receiving uh, five-fluorouracil or capecitabine. And, and this is not sort of a routine standard operating procedure right now, but it's basically something that we do offer to primarily our uh, GI medical oncologist. And after presenting the data, we now have at least a few physicians who are very interested in testing. Again, with our cancer center being based out of Charlotte, but we have multiple sites, we've actually developed kits to send out to those sites so that way they can do cheek swabs and then overnight the sample back to us. We just recently started this um, essentially earlier this year and we may have tested maybe about um, 25, 26 patients so far. Um, and typically, you know, we would only expect for maybe 5% of patients to carry a variant. Um, however, we've already identified, I think it's been about five patients or so. Um, and so we're, we're, we're identifying these patients pretty early now. Some of them are brand new patients that haven't started treatment yet. And we've identified a variant and been able to institute a dose reduction up front to help prevent toxicity. Um, but unfortunately, there's been some other patients who have already developed toxicity and had already been hospitalized for days to weeks um, due to a, a 5-FU-related toxicity. And then the, the physician decided they wanted to test for DPYD. We got the test results in and, and the patient carries a variant. So, so we're hoping that, that we'll see a shift now, especially as we're now identifying these variants 
um, and we're identifying them in patients who have already had toxicity, hopefully we'll see a shift where physicians are actually going to be sending this in uh, prior to the first administration of the drug. So we're hoping to institute more and more tests now going forward. Uh, but it's been it's been a long road over the last seven to eight years to really get this new program implemented. Um, and now I've been able to recruit a couple more folks to help me out as well. So but it's been a very exciting time and I'm very excited to see how how we're going to scale this up, um, especially as we talk about our partnership with Wake Forest and potentially look at testing beyond just the cancer center as well. Well, that, that's awesome. That's a, a lot of awesome thing you guys are doing. And I think starting a PGX test before you put a patient, especially when it comes to cancer medication, because you want to do that uh, from the beginning, you don't really want to do a trial and error there for sure. And so that that's really awesome. You guys are doing that. But um, who actually, because I know you said you were, you were doing a grant, uh, this part of the grant. So is that, the, is that how the funding takes place? Because I know the cost to some of these, they may not be covered by the insurance or... You know, some people don't have the insurance um, that's needed or the copay is high. So how do you get about the um, that piece of it over the payment payment model, I guess, if you want to talk about the payment model? Sure. Is it that does the grant cover for the patients to get the test done, I guess? Yeah. So we've got a couple mechanisms. We've got um, right now two primary grant mechanisms. Again, we've got the palliative medicine study that is funded by the American Cancer Society. And then we have a transplant study, which is funded by the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy. So patients who are eligible for those trials, they get enrolled into the trial, obviously no cost to them, covered by the grant. And that's our multi-gene panel. We're looking at about um, 11 or 12 actionable genes that are related to supportive care. Um, outside of that, again, we only have our two clinical diagnostic tests, single gene tests which is a CYP2C19 and DPYD, patients who are eligible for those tests, uh, we are covering the cost. We're actually not billing patients. We're not charging patients. Um, we're just eating the cost of that right now institutionally. As we move forward to a model in the near future to be able to set up the billing system and ideally get greater reimbursement for these patients, that'll hopefully be the ideal scenario. Right now, again, we just decided that it is clinically appropriate to implement these. Um, mm -hmm. However, we did not want to add to the overall healthcare cost directly to the patient, given right. that there's limited coverage. And so, um, and so those are for those two clinical tests. If we have patients or providers who are interested in other tests outside of what we currently have, we do send out testing to commercial vendors. And then obviously through that mechanism, there is going to be cost associated with that. Um, and it can range anywhere from you know three to five hundred dollars or so for a multi-gene panel. Um, but what's good is that we are now seeing a shift in the payer coverage and reimbursement, especially with CMS and Medicare now for the first time really covering multi-gene panels with some certain stipulations, number right. of genes, if they failed certain therapies or if they've got a certain indication. But this is really the first time that we're now seeing some coverage. Um, for multi-gene panels, which is great, and hopefully we'll start to see some of the private payers follow suit as well. Um, I know that United Healthcare, for example, covers multi-gene testing for um, psychiatric conditions and such. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think we will see this, um, this payer landscape um, continue to widen as more and more evidence comes out. Um, and also at the same time, the technology that's being built for more high throughput testing 
is becoming cheaper. And perhaps we'll get to a day where we can actually offer multi-gene testing for maybe $100 or less. Um, we're trying to figure out right now, is that something that we can build the infrastructure for internally, or are we gonna partner up with a commercial vendor to really figure out how we can we scale up testing? Because right now, again, we've got a fairly small operation, just a couple of genes here and there, that one multi-gene panel. But if we talk about how large our atrium health system is, we're now having those strategic conversations with our leadership to figure out, okay, we need to get ahead of this going into the next, you know, two, three, five, ten years, as we think about the increase in population who's going to either ask for testing or providers who are going to require testing. And so we really need to figure out how we want to implement a standard operating procedure for that test and how are we going to cover costs, et cetera. But that, that's a great question. Again, right now yeah. we're, we're able to cover most of it through grants or just um, internal funds. So is there a reason why you guys picked 2C19 um, um, specifically? Because I know 2D6 is a big one, but um, just mm -hmm. curious um, about just picking the 2C19 at this point. Yeah, you know, when I first started, I was really trying to identify a certain low-hanging fruit, I guess you could say, to, to consider for implementation. And, I like, and I wanted to, I like the analogy, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I'm trying I to think to, of a low-hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's almost, it's kind of hard to do that when you, when you talk about pharmacogenomics, right? I mean, yeah. and a lot of it really depends on what your providers are going to be um, willing to adopt as well. You want to find something that they feel comfortable in and that they, that they you know that they're going to actually utilize and something that we wanted to develop a test internally. And so we have a fantastic molecular biology and genomics core lab that again is CLIA certified. They've done DNA sequencing, RNA, I mean, you name it, but they have actually never done pharmacogenetic testing specifically before. And so this was kind of our first foray or avenue into implementing our first CLIA certified pharmacogenetic test. Now we are, and we, we have implemented CYP2D6 as part of our clinical trials now, but as I'm sure many folks can appreciate, CYP2D6 is very, very complex um, mm -hmm. with regards to the number of um, alleles and, and copy number issues and hybrids, et cetera. Um, and so again, with being six, seven years ago, when we were first trying to figure out what gene to implement, CYP2C19 was pretty straightforward in terms of looking at just the three primary alleles, STAR2, STAR3, and STAR17. And we knew that all of our transplant patients received voriconazole post-transplant. So it was a way that we'd be able to do preemptive testing. We know exactly who's gonna need it. Um, it's a pretty straightforward and simple assay to develop a laboratory developed test for. Um, and our providers were on board with it. You know, at that time, there was no CPIC guideline, but we had basically proposed the data and said, hey, we know that there is a very strong correlation between uh, genotype, CYP2C19 genotype, and voriconazole drug exposure or trough concentrations, very clearly established. It was also clearly established that there's a, an association between drug concentrations and drug efficacy. Um, a little bit less so with drug toxicity, but still some data with toxicity, more so with drug efficacy um, in terms of breakthrough fungal infections, et cetera. And so it was pretty easy for me to convince them to say, okay, if genotype affects drug exposure and exposure affects response, then genotype is likely to affect response. And we already do therapeutic drug monitoring for voriconazole anyways, um, but it takes about a week for patients to, to get to steady state. And then we have to get the level, then we have to wait for the results to come back in. So it could be up to about a week and a half that we're waiting, which 
an ultra rapid metabolizer starting off at a standard dose of 200 milligrams twice a day could potentially be subtherapeutic for and be at a higher risk of a breakthrough fungal infection immediately post-transplant while they're heavily immunosuppressed. So it's a very um, kind of high-risk situation too. And so our provider said, hey, if, if we can implement it, it's, it's fairly cheap to do, again, internally. Um, and there's good enough guidance to say that we could actually increase the dose in rapid metabolizers. Let's go for it. We'll collect the data. We'll monitor patients. Our data looked really well. And now it's become part of our, our standard operating procedure for those patients. Oh, that, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense now that you talk about it that way. And it's kind of easier to sell that piece to a physician, really. Um, but if you were to go backwards, I know, um, you know, you start as a pharmacist. And I know right now there's not a lot of pharmacy schools. And I'm thinking when you uh, were in pharmacy school, that's even way further back. Uh, but there's not a lot of PGX uh, classes or educational piece inside pharmacy schools, at least when I graduated, there wasn't either a lot. So, and so I'm actually a preceptor to one of our um, St. Louis College of Pharmacy here trying to educate the pharmacists coming out that the value the PGX has and all those amazing things pharmacists can do outside of just uh, retail and um, hospital. But how did you, when you became a pharmacist, even stumble upon PGX to even go this route? Um, I think that's where um, I, I would want to know because I mean I know where my path uh, got got here, uh, but um, just curious about yours. How you even stumbled upon pharmacogenomics? Yeah, you know it's really interesting. As I'm sure is the case with probably most pharmacy students going into pharmacy school, I had never heard of pharmacogenomics before. I had no idea that genetics could affect drug response or drug toxicity risk. Um, I knew very little about it. And so, you know, I went into pharmacy school and then I think it's in my third year that at UNC, we had a, an elective class in pharmacogenomics. And so I was like, okay, well, that's gotta be really interesting. So I, you know, I took that elective, learned a little bit more about it, got really fascinated in it. And, and when I first went to pharmacy school, I always thought I was going to pharmacy school to work in retail because I'd actually worked in retail in high school. And then again, during pharmacy school, and I always thought that that was going to be the path that I would follow. Um, then I really learned more about the value of clinical pharmacists in the hospital setting. And so I got interested in that. Um, I started doing some research bench work uh, for one of our professors at UNC um, who was researching drug transporters. Thought that that was interesting, but I didn't really want to be at the bench the whole time. And so I was like, okay, maybe research isn't, isn't, isn't it for me. Um, clinical was still interesting. I, I shadowed our oncology professor, um, did some oncology rotations in my P4 year. And then I was able to establish as well a pharmacogenomics rotation in my P4 year, again, with Dr. McLeod. And it was just, it was kind of eye-opening in terms of learning about a lot of the work that he had done up to that point, you know, he was very key in some of their early um, genes that were identified like TPMT and DPYD, et cetera. And so it was really exciting to figure out mechanisms to better understand how can our own DNA affect drug response. And if that's something that you can prove, how do you translate that into clinical practice? And again, I was very early into learning about some of this stuff. At that time, UNC had an oncology fellowship available that they offered to, to graduates. And it was more of an academic fellowship in, in oncology. 
But again, I became really interested in this aspect of pharmacogenetics and I had already done the rotation. UNC actually had a, a center for pharmacogenomics and individualized therapy there that Dr. McLeod was a director of. And they had taken PhD students and postdocs and things, but they didn't really have a PharmD fellowship set up. And so I had actually approached him and said, hey, is this something that we could do? I'm really interested in this. I want to establish a career in this area. But understanding, like you said, this was, you know, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. there weren't many programs out there looking at pharmacogenomics. Um, and so I had told him, you know, UNC is a perfect place to establish this. And so I had talked with our oncology professor, too, and said, hey, oncology, pharmacogenomics, it all seems like a lot of it goes hand in hand. You also talk about cancer genomics. And so we ultimately were able to establish a new fellowship at that time, which was sort of a hybrid of an oncology pharmacogenomics fellowship, slightly academic, slightly clinical, some bench work. So I did some actual genotyping myself, but it was really something that we were able to establish together. And that's what I tell a lot of the pharmacy students when I take them on rotations now here at, at Levine Cancer Institute is that if you're interested in something, you know, identify champions and figure out how you can make it happen. It doesn't mean that something has to exist in order for you to have that experience um, or to get something done. It, you may identify a brand new area that you might be interested in, something that you came across that you didn't know existed. Um, and, and it still may not exist in terms of the opportunities that you're looking for, but you might be able to identify the champions out there or the experts who can make it happen for you. And if you can partner up with them and really convince them that, you know, you're the right investment, that if they invest in you, that you can make something out of it. Um, that that's, that's huge. That's important. A lot of that came from networking and really kind of just selling myself and saying, Hey, I, this is, I know exactly where I want my career to be. Um, I just, I need you to help me get there. And if they see the value in you, then, you know, you're, you're, you're golden. And that's, and it worked out very well for me. Um, timing worked out very well for me in terms of, doing the fellowship and then this brand new cancer center coming up. Um, it was uh, somewhat of that kind of high risk, high reward position because, you know, it's coming to a brand new cancer center that nobody knew about. And if, if we hadn't done well, then, you know, perhaps the program never would have done well. Um, but now we see 18,000, over 18,000 new cancer patients a year. Um, it's grown tremendously um, nationally recognized now. And so now we've been able to, really put together, I think, a very nice program that is um, gaining some attention. And I really hope that we can now make a difference even outside of the Cancer Institute, as I mentioned. Um, One of the things that we're doing now is our health system is actually transitioning from Cerner to Epic as our primary EHR. And as we're doing this, we're actually trying to make sure that we can now integrate pharmacogenomic information into Epic before we go live. And now I've been working with all the therapeutic areas across the health system to identify a process to integrate pharmacogenetic data into the EMR based off of what the physicians actually want to see and what they would actually consider ordering tests for or what they would potentially act on if test results are available. So it's been a very busy year trying to get that started. I think that's actually key to what you said, um, integrating it into EHR. I I remember Epic was one of the software programs that was in the hospital. I was doing a rotation. So that's huge if we can kind of put that into the patient's profile, because one of the things I try to teach um, pharmacists too is 
it's if you do the PGX test with whatever clinic you're in, let's say where you're at right now, just for the cancer center, you have to actually share that report with all other clinicians, primary care, it could be a, a cardiologist, it could be a psych, uh, mental health, like all of them will have will have access to your PGX report comps. Obviously your DNA doesn't change, but how cool would it be that everybody has access to it? So if you are done with the cancer, you're good to go, for example, and now you see your cardiologist or um, you see primary care, there are still medications in that category that are related to the enzyme. So if you know that you might be prescribing something different versus you didn't have that information, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So I think that's that's really key um, in sharing that information with all other clinicians as well. And the other awesome thing is that you said exactly uh, right on point, if it doesn't, if an opportunity doesn't exist, create one, like come up with an idea and be innovative that way. I think in school, we're really thought more clinical than more business mind. So um, I think that's, I mean, pharmacists are doing things differently right now, but um, just creating that piece, if exactly like with um, what you've done and where you're at right now, you've created this model. I feel like you had a lot to do with it. Same thing with the, um, the College of Pharmacy, like the rotation did not exist. So I kind of offered and sold that idea and the reasons why and, you know, the benefits of it and it got created. So, yep. you know, you you could do something like that. So, you know, that that's pretty awesome. And, and a lot of pharmacists may not know that we can be involved in research and grants. So yep. is so that that's another key piece that you're in as well. So that's pretty awesome. And I was going to ask you what you um, suggested the pharmacists coming out of pharmacy school or in school or their last rotation or deciding where to go or how to start. But I think you touched upon that. But <laughs> if you have any uh, other advice for pharmacists, uh, you know, I'm sure they would love to hear it. Yeah. Transition. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, yeah, and again, it kind of goes along the whole line of, um, you know, kind of identifying your niche, right? And taking your time to identify that niche. It may not come in your first year of pharmacy school. It may not even come during your fourth year of pharmacy school. I didn't figure it out until my fourth year, really. Um, and, and you may need to undergo additional postgraduate training for you to really figure out what your niche needs to be or wants to be. Um, and again, if that niche doesn't exist, but you know that there's an opportunity there, then figure out how you can make it happen and identify the right people who can um, help you kind of get there. Um, and a lot of that, again, comes from networking. I think for right. students who are pre-pharmacy school or just going into pharmacy school is to gain exposure. Um, again, when I went in, I had no idea all the different opportunities that actually existed for pharmacists. And so all I started doing was shadowing professors, um, asking them if I can do a summer research internship in their lab. Um, just saying, hey, can I come follow you at the hospital for a couple hours here and there? Um, you know, it, it's kind of tough to put yourself out there sometimes, but, you know, a lot of times you'll be shocked at how many people are actually willing to help you. And, and nowadays as well, social media is so big, right? So, you know, like podcast and being um, accessible on LinkedIn and things like that, um, following certain people that are doing things that may interest you and maybe reaching out to them and saying, hey, you know, I see you're in this very interesting position. Um, I'm just now starting pharmacy school. Uh, could you spare 15 minutes so I can learn about what you do? Um, again, you'll be shocked at how many people are out there are actually willing to kind of help you. Um, and so I think just gaining that exposure early on and then taking your time to figure out where do you see yourself in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Um, and that's really what I did. And I kept trying to follow that vision as I established that path forward. 
And you'll be amazed. You're right. Uh, how many people reach out on LinkedIn to me as well, asking questions. And you're right. If, if you just make that first initial uh, connection and build your circle, um, you know, there's a lot of people that have been in everyone else's shoes and willing to help answer questions. So, so saying that you might get a lot of, um, messages on your LinkedIn or any other social media on people asking you questions and maybe people who are in North Carolina can reach out to you. So I really appreciate you taking time to be here today and, um, you know, sharing a little bit of your story. It's very fascinating. And, um, you know, I'm always really excited and proud and, um, to know other pharmacists have done so much outside the box. It's, it's amazing. There's like pharmacogenomics, there's epigenetics, there's, Mm -hmm. Um, nutrigenomics, there's um, functional medicine that you name it, the list can go on. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Well, I appreciate your time again. And um, hopefully we'll have you back maybe when you have your, you know, research more, like figuring out the implementation piece a little bit more than you can kind of educate us on, on that topic a little bit later. That would be great. I'm hoping in this next maybe one to two years, we'll have established a program across the entire health system. So I'm looking forward to That'd that. That'd be awesome. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was great chatting with you all. Thank you. I appreciate it. You have a great day. All right. You too. Thanks. Thanks for your interest in PGX and for spending some time with us. Please share this podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For all of our episodes, please visit PGX4RX.com. That's PGX4RX.com.